for 13 weeks and deal with characters in the Bible. Now, when we're praying this week, we want to ask you to remember to pray for the folks in Guatemala who are not in Guatemala yet. <laughs> they left on Friday. They were supposed to be there uh, yesterday or Friday, late Friday night, and um, something happened. They're playing in Dallas. They have been in Dallas until today. They're planning to get on a plane today and go to Guatemala. So um, be praying for them. And, you know, this, this did not surprise Jesus. Amen. He knew this was going to happen, and it's okay. We don't need to be worried about anything. But um, let's do pray for them, and they'll be effective when God gets them down there. But, you know, we're going to be looking at 13 different characters, and two of them are going to be couples. They're going to have Priscilla and Aquila, and then we'll have Mary and Martha. But for the next 13 weeks until the week before Labor Day, we're going to be looking at characters out of the Bible. Seven of them are going to be out of the Old Testament. We do encourage you to read ahead and look at them. You know what's interesting to me about the Old Testament, one thing I like about it so much, is it's the story of people. It is people. Now, in the New Testament, we have people, stories in the, in the Gospels, and we have stories in the book of Acts, but the rest of the New Testament is really basically the uh, delivery and application of doctrine. In the Old Testament, you just have stories of people and how they did it right and how they messed it up and, and how we find ourselves in them, how we can relate to them. And um, So as we're, as we're looking at this series over the next 13 weeks, we want to encourage you to check these people out. We're going to look at Abigail. She was married to a real jerk. Okay? So how many of us can identify with that? How many of our spouses can identify with that? Who needs to come for that Sunday? That's going to be Abigail. Uh, Ahimeas, this little guy, he was so eager to serve Jesus that he made all the mistakes possible and ended up not serving at all. It's a tragedy. But we're going to be looking at 13 folks, and we hope you'll enjoy this, this series. Today we're starting with a fellow named what? Starts with an N, ends with an Oa. <laughs> right, thank you, Noah. Good, good, good. We're going to be looking at Noah, and what's the most famous event in the life of Noah? The flood. So we're going to look at Noah's life <clears throat> in three sections in relation to the flood. Before, during, and after. Okay? And we're going to start, and like I said, we're, we ask you to read Genesis 6 through 9, so we'll start in Genesis 5. As we think first off about before the flood. Let's look there in chapter 5, verse 25. It says, when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. And called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Verse 32. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah is the tenth generation from Adam. Noah's granddaddy was Methuselah, said to have lived 969 years longer than anybody else in the Bible. Noah, Methuselah was about 250 years old when Adam died. Can you imagine having known your eighth ancestor back for 250 years? Lamech, his, Noah's daddy, was about 50 years old when Adam died. Can you imagine going to your dad and saying, now our 10th generation back, what was he like? I have stood at the grave of my 10th generation back, a guy named Alexander Marshall, born in 1676, and my dad never met him. <laughs> and here Noah was able to reach back into history all the way back 
through his dad to the very beginning. And when Noah was born, his daddy, Lamech, named him a prayer. His name is an absolute prayer. As you find there, it says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Every time he called Noah's name, Lamech was reminded, I'm praying. This, this kid is a reminder that I'm praying and asking God, please lighten the curse. Please lighten the punishment that was placed on humanity as a result of Adam's sin. That's what he's referring to. It's that curse. It's a twofold curse that God had placed on Adam back in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. The first part of that curse was you're going to have to work to eat. Now, in the Garden of Eden, it just sprang spontaneously out of the ground, and they could go over and eat all the figs they wanted, figs and dates. What else is there? But after the, after the curse, after the fall, you're going to have to work hard for your, for your food. And secondly... The ground is going to fight against you. When you plant corn, it's going to come up with thorns. When you plant wheat, it's going to come up with thistles. The ground is going to fight against you. And what Lamech is saying is, it's just, it's just so hard. Could we please have some rest from this curse? And that's what Noah means, is rest. Every time he called his child's name, he was speaking a prayer to God. God, I'm asking you, please give us rest from this curse. It's such hard work. And when Noah was born, it was a world vastly different than the one that we live in. There's several differences. One of them, people lived longer. Uh, functionally, by a factor of about 10, they lived longer. Uh, we cannot understand that world because, as Second Peter tells us, it's a world that perished. Now, I'll tell you this. The Bible was not written for the purpose of describing the flora and fauna of a world that has perished. The Bible was written to reveal the plan of the planner. And that it doesn't have with it all of the accompanying interest stories that we might like to have with our supposedly sophisticated mind. It's not the Bible's fault. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal the planner to us. And it does that quite well. And what things we do not understand, we might just have to be okay with the mystery. But I do believe that Noah existed. I believe he was a real man. I believe he lived as long as the Bible says that he did. I believe he built a really big boat. And I believe eight people entered into it. You know the two best days in the life of a boat owner, don't you? The day he buys it and the day he sells it. Well, Noah built it and he never sold it. So I wonder how this is going to turn out. And you know, we can look at this with our modern cynical mind and say, well, we don't have the empirical evidence that we would like to have. Well, you know, okay, I understand that. I get it. But do you realize the Philistines? Have you ever heard of the Philistines? They're talked about a lot in the Old Testament, aren't they? They were the bad guys, right? Did you know that there's absolutely no archaeological evidence of the Philistines until less than 200 years ago? As an entire society, which the Bible depicts as being a very large, advanced, developed society, there's absolutely no archaeological evidence of the Philistines until less than 200 years ago. And that we don't have the empirical evidence that we claim we would like to have does not negate the existence of these people or the truth of what is said. I like what one author said. He said, the more archaeological evidence we have, the more we realize how accurate and exact the Bible really is. I like that line. But one reason it's right to believe that Noah did exist is because the rest of the Bible refers to him as a real person, including Jesus. Jesus refers to him in Matthew chapter 24 as, as being a real person. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, 6 that he was a preacher of righteousness. Can you imagine preaching for 120 years and having no converts? And you thought your neighborhood was tough. 
Look here at a part of the problem. Look in chapter 6, verse 1. Here's a part of the problem. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, some are going to look at this and say this is talking about marriage between angels and humans. Sons of God, daughters of man. That angels married humans and created this miscreant giant race. And you're going to see photographs of these people all over the internet that are real photographs. No, really they are. And um, it proves it's real, you know, if it's on the internet. But, you know, there's absolutely no proof. And in fact, the Bible really militates against that. In, in things as simple as Jesus telling us in Matthew twenty two thirty that mar- angels don't marry. There is no intermarrying in, in heaven because we'll all be as the angels are, is what he says. There's no marriage after death, according to Matthew twenty two three. So that eliminates the possibility of, of that being angels there. We also have the reality of the context that this statement is in the context of two genealogies which has just been given. One is of the righteous descendants of Adam through his righteous son Seth, And the other is the unrighteous descendants of Adam through his unrighteous son, Cain. And when you see godly offspring and ungodly offspring, and the godly offspring of Seth started seeing the posts uh, on e-harmony of the daughters of Cain, he looked at them and said, oh baby. And they started intermarrying and becoming unequally yoked. And that's what God is referring to here as having created this rebellious turning from God race. A part of the result of it, look there in verse 4, a byproduct of this in chapter 6, verse 4, is the Nephilim. Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, Frankly, we're going to look at that and say, well, they had these offspring, so that proves it was angels and and humans because they're mighty men. That doesn't prove it at all. In fact, this helps to disprove that it's angels and and humans because the Bible says, Genesis 1.24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. Everything produces according to its kind. Dogs have dogs, cats have cats, palatipuses have palatipi, whatever the plural form of palatipus is. Humans have humans and angels have nothing. (laughs) And that there is something produced as a result of this is a pretty good indication that it's not humans. And that it says that they're mighty men, that doesn't mean that they're the super race that people like to claim that it is because Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10 is talked about as having been a mighty man. He's the first on the earth to be a mighty man. It's talking about after the flood. And you have David's mighty men of valor. The bravest men in his army are called mighty men. That they're called mighty men doesn't mean they're any bigger than anybody else. But when God looked at all of this, look there in chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. He saw the degradation of the highest of his creation. It brought him sorrow. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that it had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Friends, that's what, that's what our sin does to Jesus. It just grieves him. He looks at us. He looks at the potential. How many of you looked at your kids, and you knew there was such great potential there? And then, then they make some of those mistakes, just like the mistakes that we made, and our parents looked at us with sadness and thought, oh, you could have done so much 
better. And that Jesus looked at humanity in Genesis chapter 6 and had sorrow does not mean that he changed his nature. It doesn't mean that he changed his mind. All that it means is that he was able to express emotion. That there's personality there. There's individuality there. And frankly, the Bible's full of the emotion of God. Do you realize he laughed in Psalm chapter 2, verse 4? He laughs. He that sits in the heavens will laugh. He's grieved over the hardness of heart in Mark chapter 3. He rejoices. In Luke chapter 10, he had sent his disciples out on a preaching mission. When they came back, they had had great success. Man, the devil was defeated. People got saved, healed. It was a great time. And it says that Jesus rejoiced. That's an emotion. In John eleven fifteen, he tells the disciples, you know, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad. It gives me gladness in my heart. And then just 20 verses later, eleven thirty five, it says he wept at the grave of his friend. There are two emotions in the same chapter, rather diametric from one another. Luke 19 says that he looked over Jerusalem and he wept over the sin in Jerusalem and the rejection that Jerusalem had for him. And then in Zephaniah 3, here's one of my favorite emotions of God. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says he rejoices over us, he quiets us with his love, and he exalts over us. When, when you wake up in the morning, do you realize that word rejoice means to spin about in a violent emotion? And when you wake up in the morning, Jesus looks at you and just starts dancing. Woohoo! They're awake. And friends, that, that God experiences emotion does not mean that there's change in the character of God. It means that there is individuality there. There is definitely a seismic shift between Genesis 1, 31, when it says God saw everything that he had made and it was good, and the passage we're looking at today when it says it grieved his heart. There's an enormous shift in emotion in response to that. But it does not necessitate or mean that he changed at all. And certainly he was not surprised by it either. And so what he decided to do was to turn it off and turn it on again. <laughs> That's what you do with a computer. If it does work, you're not working, turn it off and turn it back on. Look what he does there in chapter 6, verse 9. Looking around humanity, he saw Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Now there's an interesting statement. That statement is used only two times in the Bible, and both times are before the flood. One of them is here with Noah that he walked with God. The other one is talking about Enoch who walked with God and was no more. There was an ability to fellowship with Jesus on the earth like before the flood like we do not have today. And they absolutely walked with him. And can you imagine? Can you imagine being able to meet with Jesus and him hand you the blueprints for the boat and saying, now look, this is how I want it to do. Here are your blueprints. Go do it. That'd be, that'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? And so Jesus hands him the blueprints for an ark. We have three arks in the Bible. Can you name them? You have Noah's ark. What's another one? Ark of the Covenant. What's the third one? This is so frustrating because you're going to go, oh, good grief. Moses was a baby. Put him in an ark. That's the three times in the Bible that this book is used. And so, three times in the Bible this word is used. Anyway, so he builds him an ark. This is a big tugboat. This is a big old thing. It's 450 feet long. That's about from that street out there to that street back there. I came in here and measured this building the other day. <laughs> I pasted it off, and then I counted the bricks and added it all up. And sure enough, the pacing was pretty close. It's 450 feet. 
front to back. That's about from that street to that street over there. 75 feet wide. Now that's just about from that wall to this back wall here. That's how wide the thing was. And it was 40 feet tall. This, this ceiling is about 20 feet tall. So nearly twice this. That's a, pretty big, that's a pretty big boat right there. You're not putting that in your backyard storage unit. And we have some new things, that some different things that are going to happen here before the flood. It talks about rain. Rain has never been mentioned prior to this, and they probably had no clue what rain was. And here Noah is building a boat because it's going to rain, and he's doing it because Jesus told me to. And what would you think of your neighbor if he started building this boat in his backyard telling you, Jesus told me to do this? What would you think? And for 120 years, he did what he was told. And if there's anything that stands out in the life of Noah before the flood, it is chapter 6, verse 22. Look at what it says. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Friends, four times... Noah is stated as having done everything that God commanded him. This stands out in the life of Noah. It's very rare that we see it this many times in the life of any, anybody in the Bible. But it says about Noah, he did what God commanded him to do for 120 years. And really, at the end of the day, what else is there? For 120 years, he kept building and kept preaching in the face of ridicule and rejection. And friends, how many of us have trouble obeying Jesus for 120 minutes? <laughs> much less 120 years. And after 120 years of preaching with no converts, the day finally came, look in chapter 7, verse 7, when Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the flood of waters. Look down at verse 16, and the Lord shut him in. You know, it's important that the Lord shut them in. Because, friends, this is an act of judgment and it's an extension of mercy. It is judgment on the sin of those outside the boat, and it is mercy extended to those inside the boat. And judgment and mercy are God's to dispense. They are not Noah's, and they are not ours. And if Noah had been the one to lock the door, then everybody outside could say, well, Noah did this. No, Noah didn't do it. Noah is receiving mercy, which is a gift from God. And the judgment that is being extended on those who refuse to listen, refuse to repent, refuse to give their heart to God, that judgment is coming from God, not Noah, and it is not Noah's to give, and it is not ours to give. Amen? Even, even when it's so simple and obvious, it is not ours to give. So we look before the flood. Let's look during the flood. Now, there's not going to be a whole lot here because we really don't have a whole lot. We don't know what they were doing on the boat. It doesn't talk about it. We do know it was not a registered vessel with the Holland America cruise line. Okay? Shuffleboard courts, they were gone. Okay? It's a big boat, and we think, well, it'd be big enough, you know, you can get away from people. It's loaded with all these animals, and you got eight people in there. If you want to find out about somebody, live with them for a while, right? Amen? And you got eight people. How many of you have difficulty living with one person in the same house, and they're living with eight, you know? I wonder if they ever looked at each other and said, I just need some space, you know? All these animals they're having to clean up after. And we think of the animals as being full-size. Well, they didn't necessarily have to be full-size. Why would they have to be full-size? Why can't they be baby animals? You realize a crocodile grows. A crocodile will live about 70 years. 
and they'll grow as much as six inches a year. You get an old crocodile, that's a big crocodile. Reptiles grow as long as they live. So if, you, if you're bringing animals in there, why do you need a 60-year-old or a 600-year-old crocodile? Why not get one of them cute little six-monthers? You know, just one of the cute little beggars. And that elephants might have been big when they got off the boat does not necessitate that they were big when they got on it. And there are a lot of changes that can take place in the amount of time they were on the ark. How long were they on the ark? How long were they on the ark? The Bible says that it rained for 40 days, but that's not how long they were. They were on there longer than that. That's just how long it rained. Look in chapter 7, verse 11. The fountains of the great deep burst forth, whatever that means. If you want some really interesting thought on this, go to icr.com, Institute for Creation Research. ICR.com, they have really cool stuff. Fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were open, and it rained for 40 days. But the water was on the earth much longer than that. And they stayed in the ark until it had come to a full and complete stop at the gate. Please remain seated with your seatbelts fastened. And do you realize it was five months? What were you doing in January? Let's see, this is the fourth. What were you doing on January 4? From January 4 to today, they've been in that boat five months before it even comes to rest on the top of the Ararat Mountains. It's another three months before the tops of other mountains begin to poke above the receding waterline. Three more months. And all the while, animals are getting bigger and some animals are making other animals. Do you know how many rats you get at the end of a year if, you, if all you have is two rats? You can get 2,000 rats off of one pair of rats. That's a lot of ratage. You know how many worms you get off two worms in one year? 2,000 worms in one year. So I wonder if Noah did go fishing. I just got to get away, you know. <laughs> He's already on a bass boat, right? Can you imagine being cooped up in that floating stink all that time? Hadn't been cleared to leave yet. There's no drama me, lousy internet service, and really, how many times can you go to the Grand Theater to watch the same dog and pony show? I think that's hysterical. It's a dog and pony show, see? Animals. I think it's funny. And then it says, look in chapter 8, verse 6. So they've been five months, they've been three months, and now it says in 8, 6, 40 more days, they finally, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. Now look, when you look at these people as being real people, when you look at them as being human beings, there are verses like this in the Bible that just, I'm sorry, they make me laugh. How, what's the longest trip you've ever been on with a bunch of kids in the car? And Noah opened a window. I think that's hysterical. He's been in here for eight months, five months, three months, and then another 40 days, and he opens the window. Now, I don't know why he opened it. He opened it to send a raven out. I'm aware of that. But I, I, I've been in a car with five kids. For, for days on end. And you want to open the window. Noah and his family were in this boat for 360 days. 360 days of the same conversations. Imagine being with Grandpa for 360 days. Same noises, same faces, elephants all day long and bats at night. When we lived in Cedar, we lived in a really old house there. And um, Donna woke me up one night with a start, <laughs> screaming. 
her hands over her head. There's something flying in the room. There's something flying. It was a bat. There was a bat in our bedroom. And it was flying this direction. It would hit a wall and it would drop about a foot. And then it would fly the other direction. And then it would hit a wall and drop about a foot. Well, you keep adding those foots up and it's going to be in her hair pretty soon. You know, she's freaking out. So I, I did the brave thing and took it out with a pillow. But um, can you imagine what it was like? And, and things keep piling up on the ark, and the, the shovel's gone, can't find it, and he thinks Shem's daughter did something with it, and Home Depot's closed now. 360 days they're in this. I wonder if it got scary on the boat. Nobody's knocking on the outside now. They're all dead now. Nobody's screaming, let me in. I wonder if they... We've done what God told us to do. He told us to build an ark. I built an ark. He told us to get into it, so I got into it. I wonder if they ever wondered, is this all there is? Am I stuck here forever? Am I going to be in this boat for the rest of my life? Doesn't tell us that that God gave them an itinerary. Who was going to be playing for the music that evening in the grand ballroom? I wonder if they ever looked around and said, am I stuck with these people for the rest of my... Are these the only church members I'm ever going to have? These eight? I think these are extremely human people. I don't think they were that much more mature than us. In fact, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and they didn't. And if we think about their situation for a minute, I think a lot of us could identify with it, with that family, with that house, with that job, with that city. Is God ever going to get me out of here? I wonder if they ever felt like God had forgotten them. And then we come to the one, one of the most encouraging verse, verses in the whole Bible, 8, 1. Look at what it says. Genesis 8, 1. But God remembered Noah. And friends, that's enough. God remembered Noah and he remembers you. He has placed you where he has placed you and he's not forgotten you. He knows that you're there. He knows the difficulty of it. He knows the stress that you're under. And he knows the grace that he is extending to you. He's not forgotten you. I preached a sermon on that word years ago, looking, going all the way through the whole Bible. It's a great study if you choose to look at that word, God remembered And just like Noah was not forgotten, just like Noah was remembered, you're remembered too. And there finally came a day after 360 days, look in verse 15, chapter 8, verse 15. And this day does come when God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Look in verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him. And the time of during the flood does come to an end because God remembers. So we have before the flood, we have during the flood. Now let's look at after the flood. Let's look at after the flood. In 9.1 it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now that's the same thing God had told Adam back in 1.28. So this puts Noah and his sons in a category as the progenitors of humanity just like it does Adam and Eve they are they are really important people they are the fathers and mothers of us all it's the same blessing that he's given to Adam and Eve and there are some changes that took place look down and look at 821 the curse the curse that God had placed on the ground it's lifted 
8.21, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And just because you have a garden and you have weeds in your garden does not mean it's as bad as what these people experienced. Okay? I know it's terrible. I know it's horrible. It, 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 it's still not as bad as what they had. It's just not. Because the Bible clearly states the curse is lifted. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Their diet changes. Look in chapter 9, verse 3. It's greatly enlarged. Prior to the flood, they'd been vegetarians mostly is what it indicates. But in 9.3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And so this afternoon, in obedience to the word of the Lord, I plan to eat some meat. Amen? be a great day. I'm just obeying Jesus. That's all. Look at verse 20, in chapter 8, verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. My dad used to say, major in agricultural engineering, it'll be here till the end. And according to that verse, he's right. Because there will always be seed time and harvest. There will always be cold and hot. There will always be summer and winter. There will always be day and night. That's the promise of God. There are some things, friends, that we just don't have to worry about. And there seems to have been, look in chapter 8, verse 1, there seems to have been some pretty dramatic weather changes. We've never had rain mentioned before. And in chapter 8, verse 1, we've never had wind mentioned before this. And apparently these weather changes greatly affected longevity. But the Bible says that God caused a wind to, grow, to blow. We also see some promises. Look in nine eleven, chapter 9, verse 11. He says, here's a promise. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I'll never destroy humanity by a flood again. We've had some floods. Johnstown flood. We had the Galveston flood in 1900. Killed 12,000 people. Did you know there was a flood in China in 1931? They don't know if it killed 1 million or 4 million. That's a flood right there. But it still hadn't wiped out the whole earth. Because God said it will never happen again. And there's another promise there, chapter, thir- uh, chapter 9, verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. They gave the rainbow as a sign, a reminder of the covenant to himself and to us. I'm never going to destroy it by flood again. The old line, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water but fire next time. And there seems to be, look down in verse 20. There seems to be another change that has a pretty devastating effect here. In verse 20 it says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. We don't know if wine existed prior to the flood. It just doesn't say, but this is the first mention of wine. This is the first mention of drunkenness. And from here out things seem to get kind of sad for Noah. It's hard to find a commentator who looks at this last part of Noah's life and has, has good things to say about it. It's hard to find one who's going to, say, to look at it in a positive light. They're almost universally portrayed as being tragic as events. He got drunk. Look in verse 22. In the midst of his drunken stupor, one of his sons, one named Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, we don't know what that means. Whether it means you don't ever go into a locker room with your parents, 
whether it means Ham dishonored his father in some way that's just not recorded, or there are those who are going to look in Leviticus 18.8 when it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, because that is your father's nakedness. Leviticus 18.8, being indiscreet with your mother is is defined as being your father's nakedness. Now, if that's what it's talking about, we just don't know. And if Ham did something foolish with his mother, we don't know. It's, it's not impossible. It happened in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And friends, really, there is no new sin out there. You know, you, you think, well, they wouldn't possibly have done that. They, they, there's no new sin. We haven't become more creative in our sin. We might be more efficient in it, but we haven't become more creative in it. But what it was, we do not know, but we, what we do know is that when Noah got his senses back, down in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, he cursed one son, and he picked the other two as his favorites. You grow up in a family where you knew one was the favorite, and the rest weren't? Did you grow up in the family where you were the favorite? Did you grow up in a family where you knew you were not the favorite? This is not a wise thing to do. And we look at the end of a life so well lived, which seems to be ending in such sadness, and we ask ourselves, what in the world is going on? What has changed? Friends, think about Noah's life. There's a lot of things that have changed. Peter called him a preacher of righteousness. What do you do when you're a preacher of righteousness and you lose your church? He's lost his congregation. Well, he has his family, yeah, but at least one of them are laughing at him. They have no respect for him. How does it feel to get together with your family and know that some of your kids are laughing at you? Everything's changed. Everything he had put aside for retirement before the flood, it's gone. He built a boat, but who's going to buy it? There's no Social Security. There's only crushing work ahead as you look at the next 350 years where you have to start from zero. And there are no greeter jobs at Walmart. So what does a preacher of righteousness do when he loses his church? What what does the purpose-driven man do when his purpose is perched at the top of the mountains? a long ways away from the nearest body of water. And we look at this and say, you know, I I don't want to end like that. I want to end well. I don't want to end up an angry, bitter old man who's mad at God and hates his people. I've been doing this ministry thing for over 40 years, and I still love Jesus, and I still love his people. And friends, I, I want to end that way. I don't want to get to the end and be bitter and angry and mad. I don't want to lose my passion the last mile of the way. I want more wisdom and I want more thoughtful application, but I don't want to lose my love for Jesus or my passion for the work. Friends, I'll tell you, I want every sermon to be better than the last one I preached. Richard Baxter said, I preach as a dying man to dying man. I preach as never to preach again. I want every conversation to be as, as passion-driven as they were 40 years ago when we knew Jesus was coming back at any minute and we had to, had to get the word out. Well, he forgot to come back, 
but I don't want my passion to go down. I knew this brother, Bert LeBeau, what a great guy, pastored out to um, Burl, out to Burl Junction, <clears throat> out west of Cedar. He was an old retired, um, worked for NASA, and um, went into preaching, and he said, I want to die in the pulpit. I thought, well, that's a that's a it's an okay metaphor. It's a weird reality. I don't know that I want to die in a pulpit, but um, but he was preaching a funeral one day. He preached the message. Somebody stood up behind him to pray a prayer, and when Bert LeBeau closed his eyes, the guy said Amen, and Bert opened his eyes in glory. Died on the podium in the middle of a service. You know, I don't know that I want to do that. That kind of freaked people out. But I want to go out in harness. I want to go out serving well. I want to end well. Vance Hadner said, I don't want to make some mistake the last mile of the way that makes people forget all the good that's gone before. I can understand that. But friends, listen, it is so easy to get wrapped up in wanting to end well that we forget we need to now well. I can be so wrapped up in wanting to end well when I'm 106. Don and I have decided we're both going to die on the same night in our sleep when we're 106. So we're putting, we're putting our request in, you know. And we can be so wrapped up in wanting to end well when we're 106 that we think it's okay to live like the devil now. It's not. The reality is i, I got to now well because I could walk out of this building and get hit in the head with a meteorite and my now has now become my end. And if I haven't nowed well, it's a bad end. <laughs> and we can think, oh, I want to be a nice old man. How about being a nice young whatever you are? How about let's serve Jesus now instead of when I get to retirement. You know, and I have less stress and I have money and it'll be okay then. I'll serve Jesus. How about serving Jesus now? Because, friends, we don't know when the end will come. I, I want a good end, but I want a good now. I know some brothers who 30 years ago made stupid mistakes and you, they're trying to serve God now and they're preaching the cross now and they're doing great things now. But if you pull up their name on the internet, you're going to see the stupidity from 30 years ago because back then they forgot to now well. And they can be ending well now, but they forgot to now well back then. And it'll always, it'll always haunt them. And friends, it's great that Noah did all these great things and he, he obeyed the command of the Lord. But in order to end well, we, we have to live right now. And I wonder if Noah woke up after his drunken stupor and thought, what in the world have I become? What have I done with myself? I wonder if he remembered the days when it was said he did everything that the Lord commanded him. I wonder if he looked back to 6-9 when he was the righteous and blameless in his generation and he was the one who walked with God. And friends, how many of us sitting in this room today would have to admit where I am now with God is not where I used to be and it's not where I ought to be? How many of us would like to pray with David, Dear God, please anoint me with fresh oil. I need a fresh touch from your Holy Spirit today. God, if you don't do a work in my life, I'm sunk. How many of us would say, God, please make my last days better than my first days? I want to end better than I started. There's that passage in Proverbs chapter 4. 
And we see this and say, dear God, make it true about my life that the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn which grows brighter and brighter until the full day. I don't want to be one of those that pulls out the books of 50 years ago and says these were the glory days. You know, it was great in the Jesus movement. We had a lot of fun. But I'm having more fun in ministry now than I've ever had in ministry. And for that, I just want to say, thank God. Praise God for that. It shines brighter and brighter until the full day. I want to do better today than I did yesterday. And in order for, me to, for that to happen, dear God, you've got to get some things that worked out in me. I need more real life transformation. I need genuine, practical change of who I am into who you are. And friend, I'm, I'm, I, I'm really sorry to break this one to you. If you think you're too old for that, you're not. As long as we're on this side of glory, there's still work to be done. It shines brighter and brighter until the full day. How many of us would have to be, and admit we're those over in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus looked at the church at Ephesus, and he says, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. I know you cannot bear those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. Jesus looked at him and said, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and I know you've not grown weary, but I have something against you. Oh, no. You have abandoned the love you had at first. God, I don't want that said. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. How many of us would look at this passage and say, Man, I find myself in Noah's shoes. I don't know how much time I have left, but I want it to end well. I don't want to end anger. I don't want to end in bitterness. I don't want to end in conflict with those around me. God, I need a fresh touch from your spirit. Would, would you say that today? And friends, it's no farther than the command of Jesus. Let's just repent. And we look at repent, and you have the guys with the bulging veins and the too tight shirts and screaming at you on the TV, repent, repent. That's not what it is. Repentance is God's good gift to us. It is his invitation back into his presence. He doesn't scream at us. He offers it to us. Look, all you have to do is say, I did it, and I'm really sorry. And if you would have to sit here today and say, I look at my life today, and my enthusiasm for the gospel is less than it used to be. My love for Jesus is less than it used to be. My desire for the loss is less than it used to be. My passion to read and live the Bible is less than it used to be. My desire to just serve God's people is less than it used to be. If you would say those things and Jesus looks at us and says, then just apologize for it. Just say, I'm really sorry, God, I did it. I ask you to forgive me. Could I please, would you please, Psalm 92, anoint me, dear God, with fresh oil. Restore to me the joy of that salvation. If that's you, then it's as simple as this. God, I, I don't, I'm not as close to you as I used to be. And I know you haven't moved. I did. I'm sorry. Please, God, I want to come home. If you'd like to pray that, then I want to offer you the opportunity to do it. If you'd like to come take advantage of the altars up here, you can do that. If you'd like to 
get on your knees right there at your chair, we can do that. If you want to just sit in your chair's yard and just talk to Jesus, God, I don't have the passion that I used to have. And I'm really sorry that I've allowed distractions to come in. God, I'm sorry I've allowed offense to take place. God, I want to ask you to please forgive me for being frustrated with you and with your people, allowing it to make me critical of your church and your work. Father, I want to ask you, could the could my last days please be even better than the early days? Dear God, there's there's a work that I'm asking for in my life that only you can do. There's a refreshing that only you can bring. If that's your prayer, then just ask him, God, do that work in my life. Anoint me, dear God, with fresh oil. faith is old My heart is hard My prayers are cold And I know how I ought to be Alive to you And dead to me Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew. faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know I, I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me in you in the wine of your love. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? Please soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. 
Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. God, thank you for the example of Noah. Father, thank you that he obeyed. He did everything you commanded him to do. God, we want, to, we want to be like him in that way. Your Bible, your word says that these things are written down as examples to teach us. And God, we want to learn well from him. Father, in the ways that he made those mistakes there at the end, God, we want to learn from that one also. God, this next week as we head out, we want to ask that you be glorified by our lives. Give us opportunities to be a witness to people placed around us to point them to Jesus. God, we speak a blessing over this people. You said if we bless them, that you'll place your name on them and that you'll go with us all week. We receive your blessing, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are a blessing. You're dismissed.